I hope it's not a harbinger of the news of this week that the number one story on our website is about a website that trades in debunked conspiracy theories, InfoWars. It's This Week in the CLE, the news podcast from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues Jane Cahoon and Chris Warnowski, who will be talking about that InfoWars story a bit later in the podcast. Let's get started. Why can't Ohio students who return to school be allowed to wear face shields instead of masks? We've seen this in other countries, Jane Cahoon, a few few cases anyway, where schools realizing that young students may not be very good at wearing masks have been allowed to have face shields instead. But the education department in Ohio says no dice. Why? Yeah, it, actually, the Ohio Department of Health sent out this um announcement Saturday clarifying this, that you can't substitute a face shield for a, a mask or a face covering. I mean, there are certain exceptions to, to when kids don't have to wear masks, and in some cases they can use face shields. But the the, the point of this is, is that there, there's just not enough evidence uh, about whether these shields are as effective as masks in limiting the spread of the virus. Because as you know, you know, they a face mask will cover up your nose and mouth and, you know, have a pretty good seal there, whereas as these things leave a, leave a gap. So they don't know how many of these droplets could be escaping. But in the event that um, someone is allowed to use a face shield under one of these exceptions, it's got to be, it has to start at the forehead, wrap around the sides of the face and extend below the chin. And there can't be any gap between the shield and the forehead. When when I saw tests of face shields being done a couple of months ago, there were some interesting videos showing the way breath hits the shield and departs. And people are arguing that that they might be an added protection or somehow replacement protection. That was in the days before there was mounting evidence that the virus is aerosolized. Whereas if the virus does float in the air for 15, 16 minutes and or for time after for as far as 16 feet away, then a face shield really wouldn't protect you because there is, like you said, no air shield. So I imagine that that's playing partly into why the Department of Health is saying it, although it, it, it's better than nothing. And for kids right. that are unable to wear a mask, a face shield does offer some protection. It doesn't doesn't matter. Once the kids go back to school, the virus is going to spread. The news was replete over the weekend. You had had colleges coming back and schools coming back and almost everywhere where they start, they have pockets of virus. So we'll see how it goes. uh, Not in Cuyahoga County mostly, but in most of the other or elsewhere in the state. Lots of kids going back to school soon. It's this week in the CLE. Why is the cozy relationship between the former Cuyahoga County jail director and a state jail inspector getting attention regarding problems at the jail in 2018? Chris Ranowski, it's taken a long time to get this information that when we had the eight deaths of inmates in the jail in 2018, which was four times as many as it ever happened in a year, we, di- we didn't know quite what was going on because the jail inspections kept saying everything's fine when obviously it wasn't. This was an illuminating story. Right. So uh, just for uh, some background in this story, there you you had already sort of gone through the fact that we had a sort of record-setting amount of people die at the jail in 2018. 
that ended up resulting in the jail director, a guy by the name of Ken Mills, uh, losing his job and then eventually getting charged with some crimes related into related to the investigation into the jail. The U.S. Marshals came in and did a inspection of the jail after all these people died and found a lot of problems, which raised the question. If all of these problems exist in the jail and they were relatively easy for us to find, how did state inspectors miss this? That was a big lingering question. So we got a hold of this uh, inspector general report, you know, I think earlier this year, maybe late last year, and and there was stuff redacted out of it. And so what we were finally able to get was an unredacted copy of this report. And you're right. It was very illuminating because – it showed that Ken Mills had a very buddy-buddy uh, kind of relationship with state jail inspector Joel Comins, Commons, I believe, maybe. Um, but what it, sh- but but what this report shows is that it, like, their relationship may have impaired the state inspector's ability to provide legitimate, independent oversight of the jail. And so, you know, some of the things they talk about here is you know, Mills kind of getting a heads up when inspectors were coming so they could clean things up and, you know, keeping people out of the jail, you know, while they clean things up and, and, you know, him telling people that he kind of had a guy in his pocket. I mean, the story goes into a lot of detail about the back and forth between these two guys. And, and, you know, and, and it's worth stressing this, the state inspector has not been accused of any criminal wrongdoing or uh, of any sort. But you could kind of see maybe why they didn't want us to to know this, because it, it really is kind of incriminating. I mean, it looks it's a bad look for Mills and the jail and the county in general, which, you know, ultimately oversaw the, uh, you, you know, the day to day things that uh, that took place in that jail. You know, the the question I have, though, now that we've seen the unredacted part mm-hmm. is what was the legitimacy of the exemption? They cited and providing it redacted. I mean, I don't, I don't see any reason legally that they could have withheld that from us. Um, I think, uh, you know, I, I don't know whether this is a legal exemption or not. I'm just putting on my, you know, if I work for the county and I was trying to hide this from the media hat. Uh, <laughs> but, but it would, you know, well, but, might, but, I mean, but, but, right? Yeah, they, they can want to hide stuff from us, but the law only allows them to exempt it. For very specific things, and I, what is the exact? We ought to come back on well, this. This is we are, we are. Trust me, like it's it's something we're looking at. It's but but you know, I mean, if the if this county withheld information without having a legitimate public records exemption to do so, then they should be spanked. That's wrong. That's illegal. Frankly, it's breaking the law. So, what was the exemption they claim? I mean, they're still claiming it, right? We didn't get this through a public records request. We got this through sourcing. Yes. And, and I think, I think, you know, one of the things that might be, and and again, this is, this is just speculation, but maybe this ongoing investigation also involves the state inspector. And maybe they're using that as a reason of saying, Hey, we're not going to name somebody who hasn't been charged with a crime or, or something like that. It may, look, it may not hold any legal weight as far as, as making this record public, but I mean, you know, we've seen them. We've seen them sort of use that logic before in in trying to deny public records. But it was in the public's interest to know this. That and it's th- two it years old, hu- and it was a question <laughs> at the time. How could the inspector 
give them the stamp of approval over again. Remember Buddha? She was very frustrated. He's like, look, I have inspection reports. They keep telling me we're doing a good job. I don't know what to do. And that's when he brought in the marshal service. He was legitimately perplexed. So I, which is actually even more reason. Why didn't he release the damn thing? Cause it would answer his question as to why they were getting bad reports. Anyway, I look forward to hearing more about this as we dig deeper, but this records exemption is, is an interesting issue. This week in the CLE, what are the demands that we're suddenly hearing from the parents of Ohio State Buckeyes players who are not happy about the Big Ten's cancellation of the season? Jane Cahoon, college football is big business, and (laughs) it doesn't seem like this story is going to end quickly. Uh, Interesting development over the weekend about the cancellation of the Big Ten season. Yeah, the the parents clearly want their kids out there playing, and as Doug LaMaurice put it, they're, they're rattling the cages of the Big Ten leadership. The Ohio State Football Parents Association put out this letter Saturday afternoon spelling out like a list of demands, including reinstating the fall football season. And at the very least, they, they want a better explanation as to why it was canceled. They, they think that the Big Ten commissioner, Kevin Warren, has not communicated effectively about this. And um, so in addition to the the reinstatement, they want a number of other things, including, and this kind of reminded me of our quest to get the uh, coronavirus data from the, from the state of Ohio about how the coronavirus is spreading. They want the data behind the decision that was made to, to cancel. And they want to have a Zoom call with Kevin Warren and uh, they, they want a detailed action plan and, and, you know, alternate plan if to canceling the season. And and they want a response no later than uh, August 19th. You know, that's not an unreasonable request, right? You've canceled the season. You've, you've dashed all of their work and their effort. And we just want to know what you base that on. It's interesting that the head of the NCAA uh, came out, I think it was yesterday and said that with the current state of testing in America, there's no way any sports should be played. He was talking about delays and availability. I wonder if that was partly in reaction, but, but you know, the, and you're seeing this according to Doug in other, in other uh, big 10 schools, Penn state is one. They, they just want, what did you base it on? And, and is it legitimate? And, you know, like you said, we ask those <laughs> kinds of questions ourselves, not always to get the answers. So we'll have to see if the big 10, at least, becomes somewhat transparent about what they're talking about. It does raise a question, though. If these kids are all adults, they're all older than 18, and if they know the risks and they want to play anyway, should you let them? You know, it's a it's a tough one. I mean, I, I know that colleges are afraid. If somebody gets sick and dies, it's a gigantic mark against them, the, the death of somebody just for our entertainment. But they are adults, and if they want to play, why should you stop them? Well, I mean, the same thing's happening in professional sports where there there are controls over, you know, those players are adults, obviously, too. But, you know, they they have to um, make decisions at the top as to to whether it's safe. Well, the difference, of course, is the pro players are getting paid a lot of money and the college (laughs) players are not getting paid. Right, which makes it even bigger concern. You know, you're going to make these kids get out there and possibly risk their lives when they're not even getting paid. Right. Okay, it's this week in the CLE. 
Why is the mysterious arrest of an Ohio correspondent for InfoWars, which trades in debunked conspiracy theories, causing an entirely new conspiracy theory? Chris Ranowski, there was an arrest over the weekend, and the lack of information has just fueled the rumor chain, so set the stage. Right. Let this be a lesson to any police officer or public information officer for a police department that might be listening. Like it bodes well for you to release information about arrests because boy, did this story take a life of its own over the weekend as we awaited and tried to get more information about it. So a woman who lives in Portage County, uh, who goes by the name of Millie Weaver, real name is Millicent Weaver, uh, she's a 29 year old woman was arrested Saturday and is accused of, I believe it's domestic, there's some domestic violence charges in there and uh, a host of other things. And uh, she was taken into custody and she live streamed part of her arrest and then it kind of went black. So she has kind of gone off the radar for a little bit. And and so she's a correspondent for InfoWars, which if you're, you know, familiar with things like the Sandy Hook truthers or, you know, people who think that there's something in the water that makes frogs gay. That's uh, that's Infowars.com. And and so <laughs> she was taken into custody along with her boyfriend, a 45 year old man named Gavin Wentz. And they're both being held on the same charges. They're supposed to appear in court today. And my guess is we'll get some more details about why they were taken into custody. But what happened was, is the sort of conspiratorial internet got a hold of this and and she is behind what became a there's a hashtag out there called shadowgate which is one of these sort of deep state you know putting the pieces together uh get your head out of the sand sheeple kind of conspiracy theories and and they're sort of claiming that she was taken into custody uh in order to silence her about this now i don't know well, how she- I don't know how she, hooked in the Portage County Sheriff's Office is into the deep state, but um, but but, but she we'll had see. promised, right? Didn't she release a video trailer that promised what she called was the biggest evidence yet of some kind of conspiracy to have a coup against Donald Trump? I mean, there was something that she had announced, yeah, yeah a couple she, of weeks she, ago. She had announced that she was going to sort of expose the the sort of deep state conspiracy theory um, that showed that the whole Russia investigation was a big hoax against the president. And, you know, since then YouTube and YouTube has taken it down. Facebook is trying to get a hold of it because the video has been shared. I think and and the post about it have been shared millions and millions of times. So the timing of this could not have been worse for people trying to sort of tamp down disinformation so this has sort of been used to kind of elevate the uh, the conspiracy theory that she was set to kind of expose uh, on the internet. So, yeah, I mean, it's this is this is a wild story. This is was not something that I was hope like thinking we would wake up to this weekend, but but certainly there's a there's still a lot we haven't learned about this, and we'll probably get more today. I think Corey Schaefer, who wrote the original story over the weekend, is following up on it this morning. Yeah, it was the number one story on our site for the weekend, which was pretty much guaranteed to happen. You arrest a conspiracy theorist and keep reasons secret. It guarantees to fuel conspiracy theory. I look forward to all the great, uh, thoughtful, 
well-reasoned emails we're all going to receive as a result <laughs> of talking about this this morning. So, um, so my name is Chris Quinn, and I know. Uh, <laughs> hey, there's a reason I didn't make it the first story in the discussion. Right. <laughs> this week in the CLE, what did we learn from previously secret documents when Ohio Representatives Jamie Callender and Shane Wilkins waived their attorney-client privilege that had been cited when the FBI subpoenaed a bunch of records from the House. Jane Cahoon, we talked about this last week. We were kind of astounded that the House would claim privilege to keep records secret in the biggest bribery scandal in the history of the state. Uh, not, I guess not surprisingly, Jamie Callender, who is not implicated in any wrongdoing, he's he represents the district or one of the nuclear plants It's at the center or the bribery scandal is, uh, waived his privilege. So what did the record show? Right. Well, they took your advice, Chris, and both Jamie Callender and Shane Wilkin, who were the sponsors of House Bill 6, waived their privileges, saying they had nothing to hide. And really, it doesn't, it looks like they didn't have anything to hide. I mean, it was a bit of a nothing burger, which kind of makes you wonder why they shielded it in the first place. But it was basically discussions back and forth with the the House lawyer about what had to be released as a result of public records requests. And it was copies of like drafts of amendments to, to HB6 and an economic analysis. You know, certainly nothing that implicated anyone in anything. Which makes this all the more <laughs> dumb, right? I mean... It, you know, if they just would have turned over these innocuous documents, they wouldn't have waved a red flag of secrecy and made one people wonder what they're trying to hide. So if they really don't show anything, why didn't they just give them up? This is this is stupid. Yeah, I don't I <laughs> I don't know the answer to that. But uh, as I said, they did heed what you said on the podcast on. on yeah, Friday. right. That's why and they did they, it. Uh, <laughs> they, they did the right thing and said, hey, I don't have anything to hide. Go ahead and release them. And in fact, you know, it happened pretty quickly um, on Friday. Well, and like we said, they're they're not implicated in this bribery scheme. I mean, if anything, Jamie Callender is the one guy in this whole thing that had a real reason to be seeking the nuclear bailout because a lot of his constituents work there and he's trying to protect the tax base. It's this week in the CLE. Why is Ohio one of the states warned about slow mail delivery possibly interfering with the election? And what is Senator Sherrod Brown and other Democrats seeking to do about it? Chris Arnowski, this is one of the more amazing stories to come out of this presidential election. Donald Trump is trying to dismantle the post office so that people can't vote. It's staggering. So what, what is the letter Ohio got um, and why is it important? So Ohio is one of 46 states that received a letter from uh, the U.S. Postal Service General Counsel and Executive Vice President Thomas J. Marshall. Um, and the letter said that Ohio's deadline for requesting an absentee ballot falls too close to Election Day to guarantee that it will be mailed in time, especially since the voter then would have to wait for the ballot to arrive. So the state's deadline to request a ballot is the Saturday before the November 3rd election. And while mail ballots must be postmarked on Monday, November 2nd to be counted. So um, so this is creating kind of a, a really, really sort of uncomfortable uh, issue for people who choose to vote for mail, um, which is probably going to be a lot more people this year since we're right in the middle of the global pandemic. Um, um, 
the state has sort of said that, you know, there's plenty of opportunity to vote in person and, you know, there's early voting and you should do it as, as soon as you can. But I don't think that that's really, uh, you know, for, for Democrats, especially, I don't think that that's really a lot. I, I think that's cold comfort for them that, you know, we still have, there's still plenty of time. So, uh, I think Sherrod Brown has expressed his dissatisfaction as has, you know, most Democrats and some Republicans. And, and there's, uh, I, I believe as of this morning, Nancy Pelosi has, has said she's going to call House members back from recess to have hearings about this. The Postmaster General, I believe, is, has been asked politely to come and testify before the House. And, um, so I'm sure a lot is going to break with this even after, you know, between, now recording this in the time we post this. So, um, so there's a lot going on with this and it, it pretty much dominated the news over the weekend. And, and, and really, I, you know, we were talking about this before we started recording the, the podcast. I, I'm with you in that. I think that this kind of backfired that this, this really yeah. kind of blew up in their face. I, you know, I, if, if they were only thinking in a very narrow sort of binary way that, that, that messing with the post office would only affect the election, they forgot that it's going to affect pe- like things like, uh, you know, checks, medicine, yeah. medicine, you know, uh, a lot of stuff that, that, you know, really puts people in, at risk. You know, I mean, it's, it's what's sad is that it takes something like this for us to realize that, that stuff like this is important. You know, I, you know, I've been alive long enough to realize that there have been attempts to undermine the postal service almost forever, you know? <laughs> and, and, and so this is sort of like the, the culmination of decades of just, just battering the postal service from a budget perspective and, 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 and really, you know, pointing at it and saying, well, it's inefficient. Well, you've spent decades making it inefficient and you've spent dececades trying to make it not work. Yeah. And, although this is and more now we need it. Right. Right. This, this is, is extremely the, the president has said, I'm, I'm taking it down because I don't want the Democrats to be able to do mail-in voting. I mean, I mean, he said it on, on an interview with one of the conservative newscasters. The the thing that was surprising though, you're right that the, the, the backfiring that the, the U.S. opinion of the Postal Service and polls is like 90 percent. I mean, they get a huge approval rating and the Democrats are looking at the people who are lying at veterans and seniors for all the things you mentioned who are bridge voters. You know, they might they might traditionally vote Republican. But now that the Republicans are taking away their method of delivery the Democrats think they have a message. It was it was kind of a stupid thing to do, right? I mean, it, it's well, and, it's, and the conservative punditry. You know, when you when you look at Twitter and when you look at what has been said on the talk shows, is is they keep saying two things: one, that the post office is a bad business model, and two, that it doesn't turn a profit. Well, it's not a business. It is right. a, gov- it's a it's government. It's a government service. agency, right. and. It is not designed to make a profit, nor has it ever been designed to make a profit. It is, it, you know, if, if you want to apply that logic, then let's talk about the U.S. military. Let's talk about our local police right. department. None of these things are designed to be self-sufficient or, or right. you know, Schools. or even profitable. Right. You know, they, right. they, they are a service for Americans. And, and let me tell you, you know, it, it's, it's going to be way more expensive to not have a postal service if they manage to, to kneecap it to the degree that it doesn't work because, Regardless of how much it's been gutted and, and underfunded and whatever over the decades, it has still managed to work. And, 
is, you know, and, but again, it's one of those things. It's like, it's like grocery store workers or doctors and nurses during this pandemic. It took something awful for us to realize that it's very important and, and that we should pay more attention to it, though, that, that, you know, it's, it's budgeting, that it's, you know, I think one of the big issues is that Congress mandated, I think decades ago, that its pension be fully funded. And that makes it like, like really difficult for it to, to make ends meet as, as an agency. And so it makes it an easy target when, you know, budget hawks are looking for places to cut. So, you know, but we have to, we have to realize this is, this is, an agency that is just about as old as our country and and has worked through you know World War II, the Civil War, Vietnam. I mean, it is and it's, and it's it, often been a source of national pride. But the one thing I you said, yeah, go ahead, Jim. Yeah. yeah. So yesterday I saw Mark Meadows, Trump's chief of staff on CNN, kind of twist himself into a pretzel on this. I thought it was really interesting. First, he said. You know, these uh, reports about machines being removed from post offices, like processing machines. Oh, that's just a made up thing by the Democrats. And then he kind of like when he got pressed on it, kind of parsed his words and said, well, nothing's going to happen on that front from now until the election. In other words, oh, we've already taken everything out. That's how right. I interpreted it. Right. That they, They've already done this. Um, you well, know, and to- I- crippled and, and the, the post office one thing i don't think they counted on is the like they're very like postal workers are very outspoken and and fr- and honestly they, they have enough autonomy as an agency where they can afford to be outspoken i i think the people on the ground their union representatives you know they're they're getting out ahead of this and saying this is exactly what is happening in our post office and they're letting the public know about it and and i think they're doing a good job of it i think you know a lot of times when you try to report on stuff like this in the government you have to go through flax and and people and they spin it but it's this is hard to spin you know because you're seeing pictures of the blue mailboxes being picked up and taken off the streets. And so it's, it's not, it's not something that you can easily hide. And, 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 you know, there's an actual physical thing happening that, that ordinary thinking brains can see and process is probably something wrong. And, and so, you know, this is, this is going to dominate headlines, I think, all week. And I think we haven't heard the last of it even today. Well, you said earlier that we need to pay more attention to it. I think we're paying attention to it now. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why is Congresswoman Marsha Fudge upset about a letter from President Donald Trump that will be included in food boxes given to the needy? Jane Cahoon, this is a president who wants to put his name and signature on all sorts of things that the American public gets. What's this one about? Right. It's kind of similar to when Trump insisted that his big signature be on those stimulus checks that were sent to Americans. This is a program that sends food boxes. It's run by the Department of Agriculture, and they they send these food boxes to needy families. And there's a letter that, that was included with about 50 million of these things that have already gone out. It's on White House letterhead and and it's signed by Trump and it includes all these guidelines for coronavirus safety precautions and and this quote from Trump that says this pandemic has brought many hardships on millions of hardworking individuals and communities through no fault of their own. Together we will overcome this challenge and our nation will emerge from this crisis 
stronger than ever before. So basically, Marsha Fudge wrote a letter. She she is a longtime, you know, fighter against hunger, and she chairs the House Agriculture Subcommittee on Nutrition. But anyway, she and some other Congress people wrote wrote a letter just saying this is inappropriate. It's it's a violation of federal law to distribute this self promoting letter from the president. You know, just three months before an election, they want to know who's behind it, why it happened, and and why it had to be signed by Trump as opposed to the agriculture secretary or the health and human services secretary. They just said, you know, a public health crisis is is not an opportunity for the administration to to promote its own political interests. And and Fudge has been critical overall of this program. That's just a um, a side note here that that it, it's not administered properly or, or equitably, and it was designed in the dark, you know, with no input from Congress or, or emergency food providers. So there's a, there's a big history behind that as well. This is the third message the president has sent out about the coronavirus. We all got those postcards. Oh, right. Yes. Remember mm-hmm. saying, you know, wash your hands and he was the. Yeah, this the, one tells people to wash their hands, too, and wear I mean, masks. And the, this is Chris Ranowski. I, you know, given the state of the Postal Service, I don't think we're going to be getting any more postcards. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> we'll leave it there. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Okay, well, we're off to a roaring start. The InfoWars story is going to be the one that I think sets the tone for the week. So let's look for some wacky news. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Jane. Thanks to everybody who listens to This Week in the CLE. We'll be back on Tuesday. Tuesday.